appreciate the opportunity to come again to the gospel table and sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus and rejoice in our wonderful King and Savior. I'd like us to open our Bibles together to begin with to the 46th chapter of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 46, a very well-known portion of Scripture. This morning I would like to talk a little while about the sovereignty of God over history. The sovereignty of God over history. We remember that His, His name is above every name. His purposes will always come to pass. History is actually His story. In Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9, he says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. Now watch verse 10. Declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. This and many other verses indicate to us that we have a God in heaven who is sovereign, a God in heaven who magnifies His uh, radiance through events, through people, through His creation. And we rejoice in that together. But keep that in mind as we go through this study this morning. This God, with whom there is no comparison, He's incomparable. Uh, you can't compare Him to anything. There's none like Him. There's, there's none uh, comparable to Him. Uh, there's none that um, can overthrow anything that this God says and purposes in himself david said in psalm 115 verse 3 our god is in the heavens and hath done whatsoever he hath pleased he is doing something in history he is revealing himself in a myriad of ways god speaks god shows himself um, God reveals a portion of His glory, first through creation, natural creation. We know that. Uh, then we see Him revealing Himself in salvation itself, how that He purposed to save a people for His very own even before time began. And, and He's sovereign in this work and, uh, and in the work of divine providence. Now, in the words of Isaiah, we want to remember all past history of fulfilled prophecies and promises. We need to remember all the past history of fulfilled prophecies and promises. And we need to remember present mercies that we enjoy each and every day. And then we need to also remember the future realities that are ours because of God's dealings with us, because of who God actually is. 
we need to think about God biblically in uh, uh, understanding that God is the builder of all human history. He is the architect. He can be called the grand weaver, and we're going to see more about that in just a moment. He is the one that takes the threads of time and circumstance and weaves a garment that will reflect his glory in the end. And he's the only one that can do that. That's why the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, 28, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Not our purpose, but his purpose. God is the grand weaver. I love what um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar said in Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, when he's acknowledging the fact that God is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth. He said, uh, there is none that can stay his hand, nor say unto him, what doest thou? In this chapter, in verse 13, Isaiah chapter 46, verse 13, he says, I bring near my righteousness, it shall not be far off, and my salvation shall not tarry, and I will place salvation in Zion for Israel my glory. In other words, what God is going to do through history and through time and circumstance is to bring glory to His own name. He is going to glorify His name. God's glory is exhibited or displayed in a variety of ways. In His name, according to Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 58, through His power, as in the Song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 and 6, and in His majestic rule, in His majestic rule. Um, I, I want to go to a few more verses in the Old Testament before we go to the New, just to underscore this. Uh, very quickly, let's look at Psalm chapter 93, verse 1. Listen to what David writes. The Lord reigneth. How does He reign? Sovereignly. Independent of or through the agents agency of any other he is sovereign he is the i am that i am he is not the i am that i want to be the i am that i will be the i am that i might be after a period of time he is who he is through all time and eternity that's the god of the bible in psalm chapter 93 verse 1 david writes the lord reigneth he he's reigning today he reigns over all human history. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength, wherewith he hath girded himself. The world also is established that it cannot be moved. And then he says, Thy throne is established of old, and thou art from everlasting. The rule of God and the sovereignty of God did not begin in a subsequent period of time from the fall of Adam. God was sovereign and God is sovereign uh, today, even before Adam was created. He's always been sovereign. And He's always had a plan. He's always had a purpose. In all of His creation, in all of His saving work, in all of His providential 
uh, 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 provision toward his children. So David is acknowledging that. The Lord is reigning. And one of my favorite psalms is back over in uh, 145. Can you whip over there real quick? In Psalm chapter 145. Actually, we could go through this whole psalm dealing with the sovereignty of God in history. But I just want a few points here. In Psalm chapter 145, he says um, in verse 3, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. One generation. Now watch how he uses history. History. Did you know that you're a part of history today? You're a part of God's purpose. Or you wouldn't even be here. You wouldn't even exist if you didn't have a design by our Creator. But notice how he brings history into it. One generation shall praise thy works to another generation. And shall declare thy mighty acts. I will speak of the glorious honor of thy majesty or your regal authority and of your wondrous works. You see, this is the, the concept that, that we learn from the Old Testament. That God is actually in charge of the universe. He's actually ruling over the created universe. He's all, always uh, working out. His will, and we don't always understand that will. We, all, we don't always understand what God's up to. We, we don't understand some of the circumstances that we might be confronted with in our day-to-day -day life. We don't understand that. But we believe the testimony of God's Word that God has a purpose, a sovereign design for all of the things that we are confronted by in this world. While we're thinking about the Old Testament, I, I want to remind you of Daniel chapter 2 when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream of the image. You know that great colossus, the head of gold, right? And the arms of silver, um, the, uh, the belly of brass, and then the legs of iron, and the feet of iron, and the toes that are a mixture of iron and clay. Do you realize that what God was doing in that moment was revealing to Nebuchadnezzar history this was history before it came to pass because remember in that colossus dream nebuchadnezzar had daniel gave him the answer uh, because god had revealed it to him there is a god in heaven that reveals secrets and the god of heaven revealed to daniel that the head of gold represented babylon the arms of silver that were unified in the in, in the breastplate were uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, followed by the Grecian Empire, followed by the uh, Roman Empire, all the way down to the period of the Antichrist and the global uh, rule that he'll exert in the last day. Daniel saw that hundreds of years before these things actually came about. How can that be? Somebody says, Brother Jeff, do you believe that what is to be will be? Well, my question is, do you believe what is to be won't be? Do you believe what is to be won't be? I believe that history is ordained by God. The God of this Bible is a God who is sovereign over all history. I want to go quickly now to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. 
And let's learn something about this sovereign God of history. I want to go to Hebrews chapter 1 to begin with. God who in sundry times, different times, different periods of time, and in different manners, diverse manners, spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Now, now stop right there and underscore that word worlds. Here in Hebrews 1.1, the term worlds is cosmos. And, and what it's a, a cosmos is a metonymous term. It's a, it's a term that relates to different uh, groups, different uh, aspects of human existence. Uh, now that's important because I'm going to compare that to another uh, translation for the word world in chapter 11 in a moment. But here he says, uh, the God of the Bible, who is sovereign over all history, has revealed himself in sundry times, uh, different periods or eras of time. And um, he has spoken because he is a God who speaks. And he that speaks has a people that listen. So this God that speaks says, I'm going to reveal myself to you through history. And he has in these last days of the, the, uh, the uh, Jewish dispensation, he has in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. Now, who is the Son of God, class? Logan, who is the Son of God? Jesus. Jesus. So he's uh, in these last days of the Jewish economy, he, uh, uh, remembering this was written before the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, he has spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. There's that word again, cosmos. But I, I want to submit something to you this morning. That's not just talking about the material world that, that uh, Jesus is the heir of, but also the spiritual world, the spiritual realm that incorporates salvation. This is also entrusted to the Son of God. And notice his description in verse 3, who being in the brightness of his glory... And the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. I believe that these verses are uh, showing us the progressive revelation of God. How that he has revealed himself and his divine purposes through all of the eras and periods of time to bring about a successful conclusion. Now, I've said that as it pertains to Christ. Because in Christ, we have the gospel of the successful Savior. And I want you to understand that he came at the very 
right point of time in the right lineage, and I'm going to show you that in a minute, uh, at the right place, in the right manner, for one purpose, and that was to accomplish the will of His Father. And we rejoice this morning that we have a successful Savior. But this revelation of Christ didn't begin at Bethlehem. It didn't begin at Nazareth. It didn't begin um, in Palestia or Palestine. It didn't begin at that juncture. You see, this that I'm going to talk to you about a little while is uh, something that began before time began, before the sun was ever even created, by which we measure time. And He is the exact image. He is the exact reproduction or expression of the nature and being essence of God Himself. Isn't that marvelous? This is the progressive revelation of God who is sovereign over history. Now go to the 11th chapter of this same book, Hebrews. This is called the chapter of faith because faith is where this knowledge is embraced. Faith is where this knowledge is understood. Without faith, he says, it's impossible to please God. But here, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. It stands under hope. It stands under the uh, prospect we have of the future. Let me, let me say as a side note right here. Why is it so critical for us to believe in the first coming of Christ? And what was accomplished by the first coming of Christ? Why is that, why is that such a big deal to us? Because if you question the reality of the first coming, how can you rest in the hope of the second coming? Is that a fair question? So he says, Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders have obtained a good report. But watch verse 3. Through faith, and this is a gift from God, right? It's not something you can produce. It's not something you can buy or sell. This is a gift from God to His family. Through this faith, we understand that the worlds, plural, were framed, built. By what means? By the Word of God. Now, this is the interesting nugget I want to share with you. The word worlds here is not cosmos. The word worlds here is eons, ages. That's exactly right. Ages, periods of time, periods of history. It is in that context that we view the sovereignty of God this morning. Through faith we understand that the ages, as it were, were framed architecturally built or constructed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. The word framed there comes to us from a Greek word that means to set in order, to prepare, to arrange. This takes a designer 
In other words, what God does, He does on purpose. What God does, or what God uh, purposes to accomplish, is going to ultimately be accomplished. There's a chronological sequence that the Word of God reveals to us that uh, from age to age, from era to era, from dispensation to dispensation, the underlying uh, pinning of all human history is based upon an eternal principle. Now, this is very significant to our understanding of history. History is not happenstance. History is not... America just uh, didn't accidentally come along one day. Uh, England didn't. No nation did. In fact, go with me now to the book of Acts, chapter 17, in the very sermon that the Apostle Paul preached while he was in Athens. Remember, Athens was full of idolatry. Athens was full of confusion. Athens was full of sin and all kinds of uh, immoral conduct and kind of like America today. And there were all kinds of humanistic religions going on. And Paul was willing to confront the philosophies of, of Athens. And that was huge. He would take on the Epicureans who were liberals. And he would take on the Stoics uh, of, his, uh, of that day. And this is what happened. He says, as I passed by, in verse 23... As I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God, whom ye, therefore ye ignorantly worship, Him declare I unto you. Now stop right there. The Apostle Paul did not say, Hey, it's okay for you to worship these 30,000 idols. Just because you're worshiping, that means that you're safe. Just because you have a desire to worship another or a greater than you, that's an evidence that you're born of God. Paul didn't say that, neither does the Bible. He didn't say, go ahead and worship these idols. He's going to correct it. He's going to confront it with the truth of God's word. And this is very important for us in our generation, in the woke generation that we're now living in today, where the gospel has been watered down to where it doesn't mean anything to anybody. And it does not bring about repentance from sin or faith in Jesus Christ. And that's a shame. It is not the gospel. That's a false gospel brothers and sisters. The apostle Paul is a great example. He lovingly, kindly, patiently confronted the idolatry of his day. With the truth of Jesus Christ. Who said these words. I didn't say this. Jesus said it. Primitive Baptists didn't invent this. Jesus said it. In John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man, you hear him? No man comes to the Father except by me. Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. And we can never water that down. And in this generation where people are wondering and questioning, we need to have the answer for them. Jesus Christ is the answer. Because Jesus Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of history. All redemptive history hinges upon Jesus Christ. 
So the apostle Paul comes and he says, as I beheld, you know, as I walked through your streets, I, I saw that you're, you, you've got all these eyes. You're very religious people, see. Man is religious. In our public school system, they say, we don't want any religion. Well, don't, the, don't you realize that's a religion? Humanism is a religion all by itself. Atheism is a religion. Paul says, you've got a lot of religion. You've got a lot of things going on here. You, you've, you're worshiping a lot of folks. You're really woke. Everybody's going to go along to get along, but the Apostle Paul says, I can't do that. Conscience will not allow me. As I passed by, I beheld the devotion to the unknown God, whom ye ignorantly worship, because they offered to the, him. You know, in other words, they were going through the streets of Athens offering incense or offering sacrifice to all these gods, making sure that they didn't make any of them mad. And, and, and then they come up with the idea, well, you know what? <clears throat> if, uh, if, what if there's a god that we don't know about? Well, let's make him an altar too. That's called woke. Everybody's getting along to go along. Everything's just fine. But then a man of God comes and says, that's not fine. That's not fine. There's no benefit to that. There's no saving work or efficacy to that. As I passed by, beheld your devotions to the unknown God, whom ye ignorantly worship him, declare I unto you. Now watch what he said. First thing, first thing out of the box, verse 24. God, the true God, the only God with whom there is no variableness, nor shadow of turning. The true God that is incomparable. The true God that is immutable. The true God that is sovereign over all history. God that made the world and all things therein. That's the material world and all things therein. Seeing that He is Lord of heaven and earth, Dwells not in temples made with hands. Watch him. Watch him. Neither is worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything. I'm going to ask you a question. Does God need you today? Does Jesus need you or do you need Jesus? Does God need you or do you need him? Paul says... Uh, he, he doesn't need us. We need him as though he needed anything. Seeing he gives all life and breath and all things. Do you believe that? Do, do you believe this morning that God is the author of life? That God is pro-life? Do, do you believe that it's, in, it's more important to save the trees and the African monkey and the, the, the Australian whale or whatever, a snail, excuse me, a snail, uh, more than it is to save human beings? Then you're not woke. Paul wasn't woke. He says he's not worshiped with men's hands. Nope. Mm -mm. Seeing he's the one that gives life. Uh, and breath to all things. Now watch, 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 watch. And hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth. Now, brothers and sisters, I believe that verse strictly and literally. 
I believe that there is no life apart from God. God is the giver of life. That's why it's such a shame to our generation to justify abortion. Because you're destroying a life that God created. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm just, I'm so anti-woke this morning. Some of you are going to walk away with shivers down your spine. But I want you to understand what the Bible says about the true God of history. The true God of history has made of uh, one blood all nations. One blood from Adam and Eve, as it were. From Noah and his three sons and their wives. That's where the descendancy uh, of human beings came from. But it was God that was in charge of that. You understand God is the one. The Bible is so so uh, clear that God is the one that created Adam and Eve. You remember, you remember this, don't you? Uh, in, in the sixth day, uh, God uh, made man. That's what the Bible says. God made him out of the soil. God made him out of the earth and called his name Adam. Yeah, we, we understand that. And then God did something else, didn't he? And on the, God made man on the sixth day, and on the seventh day he rested. God then made woman, and neither man nor God has rested ever since. No, I'm, ki- I'm just kidding. The reason I can say that, uh, the reason I can say that, Brother Don, is my wife isn't here today. <laughs> I can just imagine her rolling her eyes right there, right now. But God is the one that, that made Adam and Eve. God is the one that gave them Seth. God is the one that, that, that brought about uh, the birth of a man named Noah. And why did he do all of this? Because he's in control of history. God uses, if you study Hebrews chapter 11, you're going to find it's full of individuals. Individuals that God used in his historical progression Um, of accomplishing his will God is the one that did all of that God is the one that chose Noah and he chose Shem and through Shem he would uh, have a descendant called uh, Eber and through Eber he would have a descendant called Abraham and through Abraham he would bring about Isaac and through Isaac he would bring about Jacob and through Jacob he would bring about the 12 tribes of Israel and through uh, Judah the uh, fourth son of of, uh, Jacob he would bring about the king tribe that would eventually have David sit upon it God did that because he's the one that writes history and Paul is introducing this pagan culture to the truth and reality of the God who is sovereign over history he says he's he's the one that made us of one blood out of all nations Upon the fa- to dwell upon the face of the earth. And there's a word here I want you to underscore. And he hath determined. Catch it. He's the one that determined, uh, ordained, appointed. The what? The times. The times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation that they should seek the Lord, if haply they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. And I love this verse. Don't you love this verse? For in him we live, move, 
and have our what? Being. Did you understand what that means, Nicholas? That means that you were born at the precisely the right time. You and I were created in the right generation. And we are a part of his story. We're a part of what he purposed for us. Each one of us. Isn't that, isn't that marvelous? To think about in him we live, move, and what? Have our existence. Our very existence is um, in, um, in debt to the sovereignty of God. Somebody says, well, Brother Jeff, I look around and I'm seeing our nation and our world and it's all falling apart. Well, I don't believe that. I believe it's all falling in place. Because, brothers and sisters, Jesus is coming. He's coming a second time without sin unto salvation to take his people home. Aren't you glad of that? You see, the same truth that we understand from the Word of God this morning relating to the first coming of Jesus Christ is going to give us confidence for the second coming. And it's soon uh, happening. Um, i got to go back very quickly before I close to the first chapter of the book of Matthew. You know, our, our hearts and minds are tuned together this morning on the incarnation of Jesus Christ, and I'm glad for it. I'm glad for it. I'm glad we can, in our generation and our culture, remember specifically a time when our Savior came. I think it's something we ought to do often, not just in December. I believe that we need to celebrate the birth of Christ uh, every time we come to the Lord's house. But I don't want you to miss something here. And, and often we do. We miss uh, this aspect of God and his sovereignty over all of history. In Matthew chapter 1, why do you think Matthew began his account this way, his narrative this way, with the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Why, why do you think that's important? Rem remember that, that Matthew was... Uh, uh, called the Jewish gospel because he's, he's writing to predominantly Jewish people about their king. It's the king's gospel. He's starting with the, the genealogy to show that Jesus Christ is actually genealogically the true Messiah. And he begins this way, and you read it with me in verse 1. The book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's connecting him to David, and by that means connecting him to the throne. And he connects him to Abraham, connecting him to the altar. The altar of sacrifice. And then he begins, right? He's going to show us history. That God ordained, that God purposed in the bringing about of the birth of the Messiah. He says, Abraham is the one that begat Isaac. Now, was Isaac the only son? I'm asking a question. Is, is Isaac the only child that, that Abraham had? Absolutely not. We know the name of one, Ishmael. Ishmael was born before Isaac. But God said, I don't 
I don't want you to use Ishmael as the line or the lineage of the Messiah. He says, you're going to have one son for that purpose, and his name's Isaac. In fact, in Genesis 22 account, when you read about him going up into the Mount of Moriah to offer up Isaac, remember what he said to him? Now uh, uh, withhold thine hand uh, from the child, uh, the lad, for now I know that thou fearest God, that thou hast not reserved from me thine only son. God recognized Isaac as the lineage of the Messiah. Remember what God said to Abraham when he said, uh, In thee shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Remember that? How is that going to happen? How is uh, the blessing of Abraham, that covenant blessing of Abraham, going to be of benefit to all the nations? It's going to be through the Messiah. It's going to be the blessing through the coming of Jesus Christ. So he begins here. And boy, this is going to whet the attention of all the Jewish people of Matthew's day. They read this and they say, hey, Jesus was the descendant of Abraham. He was the descendant of David. He was from the tribe of Judah. And, 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 and this lineage goes all the way through God writing history and God showing His purpose in the incarnation of the Messiah that it's going to be um, uh, 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 in an appointed time, in an appointed way for the glory of God Himself. I love what Paul said in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. He said, uh, uh, God sending... Uh, in the fullness of time, God sent His own Son in the likeness of sinful men. He, he, he did something in the fullness of time. Christ was made of a woman, made under the law to what? To redeem them that were under the law. He goes through that whole lineage, whole lineage, whole lineage. Drop down for time's sake uh, to verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14. And from David to the carrying away of Babylon were 14. And from the carrying away of the Babylon unto Christ are 14. You see, see, God is the one that orchestrated. God is the builder of history. God is the one that revealed to Nebuchadnezzar that he was not the most important cog in the history of the world. After Babylon would come the Medo-Persian Empire. After the Medo-Persians came the Greek Empire. After them came the Roman Empire. After them uh, came the various uh, European empires. And after America, there will be another empire. You see what I'm saying? In God's plan, in God's purpose, when we as Americans have accomplished what God intended our nation to accomplish will go the way of all the other kingdoms of the world. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not <laughs> looking forward to that. I'm not looking to lose our nation. I, 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 I want to be a defender of the nation that I love. But brothers and sisters, there's never going to be a worldwide peace without the Prince of Peace. It will not happen. So don't sit there and think that America 
is, has, which has been so blessed and, and so superior in so many ways to other nations, don't think that God is depending on you to accomplish His purpose. Because He doesn't need us. We need Him. So He's going through this and He's saying, I'm showing you this, uh, this historical period of the redemptive history that was purposed in the covenant of Abraham. He goes through the patriarchal period. You know, they're wandering in the wilderness, their enslavement, their deliverance from Egyptian bondage, their conquest and victory. And then he goes to the monarchical period uh, with David and Solomon and so many others. And then the domination period where they were dominated by these Gentile, uh, Gentile rules. But then he says, and this is what I want to close with, Verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. Isn't that a, a curious way to connect the birth of Jesus Christ to all this recorded history? 4,000 years of recorded history. Isn't it interesting? He says now, in this time frame, in this period, the birth of of the Messiah was according to wisdom. Whose wisdom? Question. Who, whose wisdom? The wisdom of men? No. The wisdom of God. At this point in time, the Son was born. Listen to this. And this is so comforting to me this morning. When, as his mother Mary, was espoused to Joseph... By the way, I've been thinking a lot about that this this week. Think about Joseph. You know, so little is known about Joseph. Joseph, very little is known about him. I, evidently, he was older than Mary. And evidently, uh, by the time Christ was crucified, he wasn't anywhere around. Because he wasn't at the cross. Jesus delegated the responsibility to take care of Mary to John. See, if Joseph would have been there, he wouldn't have done that. Very little is known about Joseph, but this thought I want, I want to bring to your mind. Why Joseph? Out of all the men in that generation, why would he choose Joseph to be the husband of Mary, to be the adoptive father of Jesus Christ? He's described as a just man, a good man, a kind man. A loving man. That's the kind of man that God the Father would entrust to take care of his son. And I thought this to myself. I wonder. I, 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 I wonder if, if, if I would be that kind of man. Is that a fair question? I, I wonder if I would be like Joseph, that I could be entrusted with the son, entrusted to take care of this little boy until he arrived at his uh, full potential, his full purpose. Interesting question, isn't it? But in God's 
historical diagram, Joseph was chosen. And here he is, a just man, and he wasn't willing to put away Mary privately. You, you, he, you, you understand what he was saying? When she was found with child in Jewish law, she was made to be stoned to death. Can you imagine that? And, and I don't believe that Joseph was an angel. I don't think he understood what was going on. In his human experience, the only way for Mary to have a, be pregnant was for her to be with another man. But listen to this. He was willing to put her away privately because he didn't want her stoned. You know why? Because he loved Mary. He loved her. When a man loves a woman, he wants to protect her. Even when she lets him down, even when she disappoints, Joseph gives us that great example. I'm going to protect her anyway. I'm going to put her away privately. And if you study that, uh, Edersheim's book on Jesus the Messiah, he gets into that Jewish law where a man had a right to divorce a betrothed woman in such a condition. Privately, it would be between the parents of the, the, the husband and bride. And they would be the only ones that knew it. Joseph loved Mary. He was a just man, a loving man in God's providence. But while he thought, see, aren't you glad it's there? Aren't you glad that's there? But while he thought, you, you know, he wasn't an angel. He, was, he, he wasn't a superhuman being. He was hurt. He was wounded. He was confused. He was sad. Because the love of his life had betrayed him. But while he thought on these things, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not. Don't be afraid to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. In other words, Mary is not at fault in this matter. And you can rest assured that I'm writing history my way, not your way, Joseph. I'm writing history the way it will accomplish what I have purposed for it to bring. And then I want to close with one of my favorite, all-time favorite verses. Verse 21. And she shall call his name. What? Logan, what is his name? Jesus. Jesus. Yeshua. Savior. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall make the best effort he can to save his people. He give it his best shot. Nah. Brothers and sisters, in God's economy, in the redemptive history of God, God sent His Son into the world to accomplish this sovereign purpose. He shall save His people from their sins. Hallelujah. Not just for today, but for eternity. You see, this is the God of history. Not only the God of the past, 
not only the God of the present, but also the God of the future. And because we can trust in the uh, veracity of the word of God and the truthfulness of Jesus Christ, we know that he succeeded in the saving of his people from their sins. And brothers and sisters, one of these days, we're going to get to see him. One of, the, one of these days, listen to it, every eye is going to behold him. Every knee is going to bow Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Thank you for your good attention this morning. God bless you. <laughs>